Time now for Connecting the Diocese. Connecting the Diocese is a production of the Diocese of La Crosse. Here's host Jack Silsha. Thanks for checking out Connecting the Diocese. Interesting story I ran across this week. You probably know that sometimes when people fall completely behind in things like medical debt, the various hospitals and organizations so-called bundle all the debt. They take all the debt that these people owe into one bundle and they auction it off at pennies on the dollar. These are usually purchased by collection agencies who then go after them trying to get even more money back than they paid for it. But now churches are stepping in one by one around the country. One purchased $5 million worth of medical debt from all kinds of people for $15,000 donated by parishioners. So now they own this $15 million worth of debt that are on the backs of various people around the country, and they simply notified them by mail that your bill has been paid. This charitable action that has such a profound difference on so many people is based on something called Jubilee Years from the Old Testament. And what a wonderful thing it is to see these people of faith of all different religions with a common goal to relieve misery and doing it in such a clever way. We'll examine this more in a later show sometime, but right now we're going to be talking with Tom Thibodeau about some other people helping out back after this on Connecting the Diocese. How many times have you heard a commercial on TV or radio where time is running out? This is your last chance to buy the, you know, fill in the blank, right? And then you're listening again next week and they're saying, time is running out. That's right up there with the lowest prices of the season. I don't care about the lowest prices of the season. I want the lowest prices of the year. Now, having said all that, I must tell you in all sincerity, <laughs> time is running out. Saturday, May 6th is coming up next weekend, and it will be your last chance to go over there and see a night with Padre Jose for quite some time. You see, they don't get up here that often. Now, Padre Jose, Father Joseph Walieski, of course, is no longer with us, but his legacy lives on in the hearts and minds of many, many people who work at Casa Hogar. And of course, many, many of the, the orphans and the other unfortunate folks they have taken care of for all these years. So on the 6th of May, Saturday, at the Memories Ballroom, now, this is out in Marathon City. You can talk to the folks who are down there right now. They're going to be up here. Monsignor Joseph Hirsch is going to be there. Father Sebastian is going to be here. There's going to be some video links down there, some stories being told, some stories about Father Joe that you probably have never heard. A lot of really neat stuff. And of course, this is a fundraiser. However, this is not one of these $800 a plate deals. It's costing $30 a piece, $30 for adults, $10 for kids 5 to 10. And they will really get a lot out of it. And you'll get a nice meal and you'll hear some wonderful stories and you'll walk away feeling that things are really looking and good because so much is being done in this diocese and in Peru and at Casa Hogar. The story behind it is remarkable, but time is running out. It is Saturday, May 6th. Just go to the diocese website and look it up or call 715-297-5139 to make a reservation because really, seriously, uh, time is running out. Saturday, May 6th. Be there. Well, as promised, Tom Thibodeau, Distinguished Professor of Servant Leadership at Viterbo University, is joining us. Welcome back, Tom. Well, Jack, it's always good to be in your presence. I tell you, I am happy to have you on. You're a voice of sensibility, calmness, and uh, always uh, uh, managing to find great 
stories and people doing good things, uh, which counteracts some of the media stuff that is constantly being hitting us all the time. But I am curious, you are in La Crosse proper, and I know that when you're not, you know, La Crosse is on the Mississippi, for those of you listening in Nebraska and places like that, you don't really maybe know the geography here, but I was kind of concerned. I know that the, the water levels are rising on the Mississippi, and one of the first places that they talked about was Viterbo Field, which is not at the university proper. It's a number of miles away, but there was flooding on Paterbo Field. I was kind of surprised about that. What, what we have in, in La Crosse, like we have in a lot of areas, is, is marshland, which is, is really kind of the, the filtration system of our water systems. And so when we have marshland, that marsh marshes then clean and clarify the, the groundwater. And so it's the backwaters of the Mississippi that, uh, and that's where our, our, feet, our baseball and softball fields were built is in this low land, of course, uh, that was land that was much more affordable and available for us to uh, to build our fields at that time. So it, it'll be a couple of weeks of wetness, but then it'll dry out and we'll get back to what we need to get back to. I missed the uh, the meltdown uh, on the rivers because I know over uh, in parts of La Crosse, you could park and you could actually uh, watch eagles uh, who are sitting around on the ice holes waiting to see if they can get a fish out and things like that. It's pretty amazing stuff that goes on this time of year, but we do have uh, uh, the threat of uh, quite a bit of flooding in our area. And uh, I noticed that there are people volunteering to do sandbagging in different places. Uh, in some places, they actually have a, uh, evacuation centers for certain people who are really close to the river. I'm assuming you are not in that predicament yourself. No, I'm, I'm, we're, we're, we're quite safe. Uh, one of the things, though, I think what you point to is this. At times of crisis, uh, communities do come together. Many of the people that we're speaking with today are in rural communities. And every time there's a crisis in a rural community, if someone has a tragedy, if a barn burns down, if something happens at the local school, the community rallies and comes together. Well, the same thing is true for hundreds of years in river towns. Whenever there's been some level of calamity or crisis at the river, people come together. And so from Hastings to Red Wing to Wabasha to Winona to La Crosse to Prairie du Chien and right on down the river, people are coming out to help their to help their neighbors. Now the floodwaters are, are, are going to be uh, dangerous for a while. At, at the same time, uh, the Mississippi was so terribly low last year that our barges could not get up and down the river. The barges uh, on the Mississippi are the great superhighway in America that makes sure that our grain gets to market, that the, the grain and everything that's produced in the Midwest goes down the Mississippi on the barges to New Orleans where it gets shipped out to the world. So how important our, our waterways are, how important our infrastructure is, and why it's being tested right now, citizens come together and make sure that people are protected, respected, and connected with each other. So if you want to look for hope, look to those small places where communities come together to help neighbors. I find this to be extraordinary. It's people who will give up a day's work. People will, will drive for miles in order to sandbag so that their neighbors, people that they've never met, their houses will be, will be safe. And then if there's damage, what do we find happening? People come out and help to restore what has been damaged. This is the nature of hope. People coming together for a good greater than themselves, oftentimes in the company of strangers. One of the things that's very important is this. 
we, people talk about the great divide in America. It's not division. It is about connections and separateness. How do we overcome our separateness? And what happens in moments of crisis, we understandably need each other and reach across to make sure that our neighbors are well taken care of. It's interesting that uh, with this flooding that's coming on, uh, we have advanced warning. I mean, you can tell the, from the snowfalls, uh, you can actually watch the rivers rise and you can check online or go to the weather services and, the, you know, they can actually tell you exactly at what point it's going to be high here and high there. Uh, there are other times, and we've seen this recently with the tornadoes going through parts of the country where, you know, you're, you're, you're sound asleep and next thing you think you hear a freight train and boom, um, your community is, is flattened and things like that. And in either case, people show up. Um, I remember during the, uh, some of the floods down in New Orleans, these people were coming with flatboats from all over the country to, uh, to help rescue people from their homes and things like that. It's an it's a inspiring thing to see, and it happens in, in big ways and little ways. I mean, even in our area here, we now have some uh, extra uh, food banks popping up and, and places to donate. Uh, there are these things that go on every school year where there are backpack drives and, and pencils and books and things like that to help out people who are really kind of stretched thin. I was just talking last week with a, a relatively new person up in Wausau who's working with Catholic Charities dealing primarily uh, with the homeless. And he's He's loving it because he spent 25 years as a policeman uh, out in Seattle uh, dealing with the homeless. And, and now he's he's really effectively trying to, um, to to really get to them and to try to find out what's going on. He told a quick story, which I'll, I'll pass on to you, Tom, because you may not have heard it. One of his guests uh, up in Wausau, uh, he suggested that he, he was Catholic. He suggested the guy, you know, go across the street to the Catholic church and, and uh, go to mass. And here's the guy sitting in the pew. And, you know, his clothes were not the best. You could kind of tell that he had been some rough times. You could maybe even spot him as being a homeless person. And he said that the, a, a young family with kids uh, came over and they saw him by himself in the pew. And they simply said to him, do you mind if we join you in the pew? And this guy came back from Mass with tears in his eyes. He, he told this, my guess, he says, this is the first time anybody's been treating me like just a regular person. And it really changed the direction of what he was doing. And he actually has, has moved along. But all because somebody just reached out and said, mind if we sit with you? treating him like a normal human being, which he was, but he was one who happened to be unsheltered. Incredible story. Just, just you, you hear these things and you just go, it, it makes you wonder what little things you can do that, that may help out a little bit. You know, it's just wonderful. Now, what your story points out, Jack, is something that's very critical in our understandings. When we judge people with levels of bias, levels of prejudice, when we prejudge people, Oftentimes, it's in terms of categories. Oh, the homeless. Oh, um, the elderly. Oh, college-age people. Those are large categories in which we kind of create constructs that begin to be uh, have, have their, all have their blind spots. However, what happened with this young family, they saw a gentleman, a gentleman whose clothes were tattered, a gentleman sitting by himself, 
a gentleman whose hair probably was not combed and maybe had a bit of a beard. And they saw all these specificities about the person, his humanity. And they said, can we join with you, fellow human being? When we take the time to look at a person with gentleness and concern, all of a sudden we begin to recognize there's a connection. Our last Sunday's gospel is that way. The two people walking to Emmaus, a stranger joins them on the road. And the stranger begins to have a conversation with them. And they make a connection and they sit down at table. And in the breaking of the bread, they recognize that they are walking with Jesus. How about us? Do we recognize we're walking with Jesus? With a young couple of family experience, you never know when you're entertaining an angel. How important and significant this is. Were our hearts not burning within us? How do we recognize when Jesus is walking with us? I would say that today, Jesus is filling sandbags on the Mississippi. Jesus is making sandwiches for people who are trying to mitigate the circumstances of crisis. Jesus is on the front line as a Red Cross worker in Ukraine today or any one of our large cities in the emergency rooms. And you begin to recognize these, these moments of grace were our hearts not burning within us. And we all hunger for this. We hunger for a sense of connection. We hunger for community. And again, intuitively, this is where you've led us in terms of our conversation. Starting off by Rivertown, starting off in terms of crises that take place in our lives, we need each other. Our lives are sacred and social. In the year 2000, Robert Putnam, a sociologist at Harvard, uh, wrote a book that's really kind of one of those pivotal books taking place in, in American society. And the name of the book was called Bowling Alone. What Putnam and his associates were able to, to surmise is that people are bowling as much as they've ever bowled before. There are still bowling alleys in just about every town that has a, a, a bar and a place which, for people to gather. But what he noticed is this, people are not joining leagues. They're going out and they're bowling alone. They're not part of a team. They're not part of a ritual of a regular Tuesday or Thursday night. We tend to be much more individualistic and he says that what we need is to develop, if you will, our social capital. Our social capital is the interactions that we have with each other. On our currency, it says, in God we trust. Well, how does, what's the currency between human beings? Well, it's God's presence in our lives. It's the people that we work with, we know, and we trust. That's our currency. And so what he begins to recognize in rebuilding community, two things are necessary in developing social capital. One is bonding capital, and two is bridging capital. Bonding capital is the ability to develop friendships, to develop social interactions that sustain our lives. One of the things that we've recognized in America today, that friendship is on the decline. In a recent study that was done in 1990, the average man in this country had 10 friends. Today, it's three. 
people who are are, are are Gen X, younger people, yes, they have Facebook, yes, they have social media, but most of them do not have a good friend. If you look at the tragedy that we've seen of people using guns and attacking other people, oftentimes it's people who have no social interaction, no level of connection. And when you have no social interaction, no level of connection, you're not part of a community, you're much more fearful and reactionary. You see people not as possible friends, community members, you see the stranger as a danger. However, if you develop a number of different friends and you learn to trust and to be engaged with those people, this is what you constantly look for. So you talked about your own community. People are deliberately and intentionally in your community of Spring Grove looking to trust each other. When you go to the grocery store, where you where you go and you get your gas, the people who come as service providers that deliver things to your house. Because you have friends, you have a matter of engaging with other people in terms of trusting each other. How important this is. Vitek Murphy, who is our Surgeon General, wanted to look at the health and well-being of Americans and began to have, uh, this is before COVID, began to have focus groups, thinking that people would come together and they would talk about their health as heart disease, cancer, diabetes, strokes, any one of particular level of chronic diseases. What happened in this focus groups, people almost exclusively talked about loneliness, how lonely they are. They don't know anybody. They feel estranged. Their family has moved together. They've gotten older. They don't know the people that live in their housing uh, area. And we find it's happening over and over again, where people are living by themselves and have no sense of connection with other people. I have a friend of mine who delivers Meals on Wheels to four people every day. He takes two hours because he realizes it's not just the food that he delivers, that he will be the only person that the people that he visits will see that day. He's not only feeding people body in terms of nutrition, he's feeding their soul and their need for connection. Well, this is what you began talking about. When moments of crisis, we automatically seek the help of other people because the Mississippi is stronger than any one of us. But together, we have an opportunity to mitigate the damage. Well, that's a metaphor for our whole lives. Any one of us is vulnerable, but together we have strength. Um, loneliness is a subjective feeling that you lack in the social connection that you need. Uh, I did a master's thesis um, and focused on, on loneliness, and I love this definition. Loneliness is the feeling that I have nothing to offer. Loneliness is the feeling that I have nothing to offer. Jack, I think all of your viewers know that right now you're eligible for retirement. But you have gifts and abilities. You have skills that you've owned for a lifetime. Owned for a lifetime, and instead of letting those skills go fallow, you use them to connect the diocese. You use them to talk with people, to create conversations in which people can say, "Listen, I'm not alone." So that all of a sudden, you begin to recognize that everyone has something to offer.
You know, it's interesting that, uh, again, we live in a, a rural area. We don't have a lot of a lot of stores. We have a, a good grocery store, which is nice. But uh, one day I was uh, critically <laughs> critically short of cat food, and it uh, was, was important to us, especially to the cats. And uh, I went down uh, to another town where there was a, a Dollar General store. And a couple of times I've been in there, and there's a guy there who's far younger than I am, and he's big. I mean, he's a huge guy, and he wears a stocking. He wears a stocking cap, and he has a beard. He has a sweatshirt that says... Iowa, <laughs> you know, and, and I've talked to him. I go, hi, how you doing? All right, all right. Is that all? You know, cash or, cash or charge? And uh, one day after, remember, there was an explosion at a, at a chocolate factory in Pennsylvania. Do you recall that? Yeah. Yeah. It was, they, they were making Easter bunnies. And, and I, I made it, I'm equipped to him. I said, you know, I see you've got these Easter bunnies here from that factory. I, I don't know what's going to happen next year because I heard the place blew up, you know. And he goes, yeah, I heard all about that on public radio. And you know, here's my, my my perception of this guy as being this great big hulking guy who's really, you know, uh, not the kind of guy you want to talk to, right? And, and so right there, there was something that, I, whoa, I didn't think you would be listening. I thought you'd be listening to headbanger music or something like that. And then we got talking about a couple of things. I mentioned something about, I get this because it's gluten-free and uh, my wife needs uh, this. And uh, he says... Yeah, I discovered uh, I have an allergy to pears. Uh, I ate the one I was a kid, and I used to, you know, get all kinds of hives and stuff. We finally figured it out. So here were two things that we <laughs> that we're talking about. So now, you know, when I see the guy, I greet him, and and we talk much better. You know, we're we're much uh, more conversant. What's going on? Because a Here's this guy who's retirement age talking to this guy who's relatively young. And usually there's a kind of a boomer barrier that goes on. You know, I don't want to talk to a boomer. And then also at the same time, this guy looked rough. <laughs> yeah, you know, he looked rough. And it's, it, I came back and I told my wife about this. And I said, I've got to remember that your first appearances are not necessarily what they are. They're, that you're, you're overlaying it with your own perceptions that are sometimes com completely incorrect. It was an interesting day. Um, I had a friend of mine uh, who was speaking here up a terrible James Bowie. He's a photojournalist and a, a artist, and he rides the buses in Chicago. They do not have a car. They live in downtown Chicago, so he takes the bus out to bring his daughter to dance lessons and then to bring her back home. And he said, oftentimes the buses are not on time, and secondly, they're not always that very clean. And he gets on a bus this one night going out to get his daughter, and he's sitting in the, in the back of the bus, and this gentleman across from him, rather disheveled, has a cigarette butt in his hand and a lighter in his other hand. And my friend saying, you know, social justice advocate that I am, I was just waiting for him to light up that cigarette, and I was going to jump all over him, saying that this is against the rules. This is not good for anyone, particularly himself, and that he should put that cigarette right now. He was all ready with his sermon. He was ready to attack. And then he noticed that the man's hands were shaking. And then he noticed that the man's jacket was a light jacket and it's in the middle of winter. And then he noticed on the man's wrist, there was a white plastic bracelet that indicated that the man had just gotten out of the hospital. And he's riding on the bus. And then he looks over and he sees that this man has wet himself. And he sees that the man is going through his pockets trying to find on another butt. And then he sees that the man had dropped the other one on the 
uh, and he bends down and he picks up this butt and he gives it to the man. And this man with eyes that were, were just, uh, just filled with pain. My friend says, do you want me to help you light your cigarette? Oh, man. <laughs> and he began to recognize that how could I be so critical of a man who was so vulnerable? Hello, fellow human being. And that's what happens that 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 what happens to you in the store. All of a sudden, hello, film beam. That's what happened on the bus. That's what happened on the way to Emmaus. All of a sudden, oh, we were with the Christ. All of a sudden, they, 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 they the, the one that they had loved and wanted to serve, now they see him in their presence. Well, isn't that the, isn't that our challenge? And what happens right now is that deep levels of loneliness that most people don't feel that anybody sees them. They feel as if they're invisible or insignificant and therefore are overwhelmed with fear. And then feeling that their only companion is 24-7 cable news. And what do we find happening? People are becoming more lonely and more depressed because they continue to watch the same news stories um, every, every day. Now, what's really amazing about the news? The news has dementia. The 5 o'clock news is repeated at 6 o'clock. The 6 o'clock news is repeated at 10 o'clock at night. The 10 o'clock news is repeated on the hour, every hour. And it's the same news tomorrow morning that you see until the news cycle changes at noon the next day. So what happens is that when one bad thing happens, it gets repeated over and over and over again. And if you're living by yourself, you have no companionship other than a TV, what are you overwhelmed with? Bad news. But people like yourself and myself, we have the privilege of being out and about in the community, meeting good people each and every day who are doing extraordinary work in helping to teach, heal, and protect the lives of other people. Yesterday, I was speaking at the Midwest Conference, a correctional educational association. These are people who teach in our jails. And I met an incredible woman, she was named the teacher of the year, who is at Chippewa Valley Correctional Institute, where there are 400 inmates, and she's the only teacher. She teaches 400 students. Hmm. And she's a joyful, thoughtful, committed person. And because they have not had enough correctional officers, or when they need a substitute, she'll take on another shift so that people can be taken care of. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, we we try to, uh, you know, at least on this show, one of my goals, if you want to call it that, is to get people to at least recognize or even think about their whatever their inner life happens to be, uh, not to just push it aside and only and just ignore it completely. But when you've got people who are, you know, in, in prison, um, yeah, they've done some rotten stuff and that's why they're in prison. But it doesn't mean they are completely beyond reclamation and they can turn out to be better. I knew a guy who uh, I was working at the time. This is 10 more, 10 years ago, back when uh, they were finally getting around to translating a bunch of stuff at the at the shrine into into Spanish. And, uh, you know, we had a bunch of us gringos trying to use computers to do it. And, and people were laughing at what we were translating. But this guy showed up from Las Vegas and he he as a volunteer, he translated everything perfectly because he, he spoke it as a native. And 
as he was leaving the area, he was going to go work with some uh, uh, some Catholic brothers somewhere on something. He, he said, you know, uh, I never really mentioned this, but uh, I was in prison for a while. <laughs> you know, I just, and I didn't ask him what for. I mean, it wasn't my business, but, you know, I said, well, but thank you so much for all the stuff you've done here. I mean, he made a major contribution. It's very strange how, uh, when you have conversations with people, what you discover. I was talking with a, a, a former chaplain uh, from the uh, the prison ministries, the jail ministries, and uh, it turned out that he was a Navy, uh, retired Navy guy, and he had spent a tour of duty in a submarine, and he was one of his tours of duty was on the Nautilus, the, the first atomic submarine. And this is long, well into its, its, you know, many years after it was brand new. But regardless of that, it was kind of amazing. I mentioned this to another guest and he goes, yeah, yeah. My uncle was the first captain of the Nautilus. He, he was quite a hero in World War II in submarines. And they, they made him the captain of the first atomic submarine. It, I realized to a lot of people, this, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense to you, but the the texture and the depth and the the captain of the Nautilus, one of my high school chums, his uncle was the navigator on the Enola Gay that dropped the the bomb on Japan. I mean, you know, you just see how you you these people that you know are tied into reality and history that's all around you. It's kind of amazing if you just just listen to what they have to say. I, I love talking to uh, to World War II vets and to Vietnam vets. Uh, you know, I see them in, in the store with a hat on and I say, where'd you serve? What'd you do? Because uh, you get to see these people have lives and they, in some, some cases, very dramatic ones, in some cases, very terrible ones where they're sorry. But nonetheless, they're as real as you and I are. Uh, this is uh, so so terribly important we hunger for human connection just kind of getting back to what i was talking about with dr murti um, in his study of, of loneliness 22 percent of adults in the united states say they often or always feel lonely um, how important it is jack when you make these connections knowing that human relationships are as essential to our well-being as food and water People with strong social relationships are 50% less likely to die prematurely. How many people, we use this euphorically, but how many people die of a lonely heart? How many people die of loneliness? Um, how many times are people called uh, EMTs to someone's house, then they fell and they weren't able to get up and there was nobody else to call? I was working with a group of farmers and talking like this, and a gentleman came up and he said, I'm a veterinarian. He said, I got called to a farmer's house and he wanted to talk about his cow, thinking that his cow was having problems with digestion. He said, within two minutes, I could tell that the cow was fine. I did a little bit of an exam and I said, your cow is fine. It's gonna be, might've been just something they ate at a particular moment, but they're, they're healthy. And the farmer shyly said, yes, I, I know. He said, uh, my wife left me, and I'm by myself, and I didn't know who else to call. Uh, and, yeah. and we find this. One-fifth of all medical appointments today, people make them and do not have a physical symptom. Why? Because your doctor is available to talk to you. Getting back to the idea of bowling alone. Yes, I can bowl alone but why would you want to? There's a number of things I can do alone, 
but are they not much more enjoyable when I can share it with other people? This is what's so terribly important about, about having meals together, bringing people together to break bread together. The word company comes from the two Latin words, kumpanus, the people that we break bread with. To be in good company is to understand that I have something to bring to the table, and I also have a right to understand that I will be fed. This is important and significant, and it's not to be overlooked. So when people come together, let's go back to where we started, come together in terms of floodwaters. Yes, they're bagging uh, sandbags. It's hard, difficult, dirty work, and pretty soon what shows up, a lunch leg wagon and people are making sandwiches and hot coffee and maybe something just a little sweet to eat and so even though i'm doing hot disgusting difficult work i'm part of a community that has come together and i find in that moment that i'm not alone that i'm contributing that i have i too have something to offer it's like we go back to the gospel on our hearts burning within us didn't we begin to recognize that we were part of something greater than ourselves? Well, and speaking of meals and combating loneliness, um, how are things going at a place of grace? Well, it's, it's, a, it's the same thing that's what's taking place right now is um, higher food prices. People are hungry. Um, what's happened is that uh, because of cutbacks at the state and federal level that people have less money in terms of food share. One of the things you begin to recognize when you're working with people who are on the margins, that even if you have food share, and when people hear about that, they call what well, well, was food stamps, well, it's a, it's a card now. And what happens is that people are eligible for about $35 a month, $35 a month. And that $35 does not cover toilet paper, does not cover um, paper toweling, Kleenex, soap, does not cover detergent. And all of a sudden what happens is that when we have people coming in, um, we'll have people in a very hushed voice saying to me, sir, do you have any toilet paper? Hmm. What, what's that like when you don't have enough money to buy paper products? These are people that are in fixed incomes. Rather than talking in terms of, you know, broad-based number of people living in poverty and people then again make categorical decisions, how about the gentleman uh, who's blind, who comes to the place of grace, brought by his uh, his daughter-in-law, who she he's actually her stepfather-in-law. His wife, her mother, died, leaving him alone. She used to take care of him. He has diabetes. He's blind. He comes to the place of grace. And, and his daughter-in-law reads the labels to see that things don't have too much salt or too much sugar. She very carefully looks through and see if they can find maybe a gallon of organic milk and some cottage cheese, things that may be helpful. And she's so grateful that they're able to get a bag of groceries, but more importantly, that they had somebody to connect with that day. I had another woman who was standing in the alley and she was crying. And I said, how are you? She said, not very good. She said, I never wanted to ask for help. But with the price of inf with inflation, the price of groceries, my paycheck just can't keep up. And my daughter, who's 11, and I have nothing to eat. So I had to get off my proud cloud and come and ask for help. 
I said, please come, take what you need. You can have what is ever, uh, whatever we have on the shelves. So we are dependent upon the generosity of other people. And then what we've been given, we give as gifts. On Thursday nights, we have a meal and there's a, a collection of people that if you sent out invitations, you couldn't find such a diverse, wonderful group of people who come together and share a meal. We begin with grace. And one of our gentlemen who leads us in prayer, he knows and he loves Jesus. And he reminds us of that love each and every day. Each and every day he's with us. And then we sit down and joyfully share a meal. And community is built. At the end of the meal, people leave, take their little bag of groceries, go back to the streets. And I'm reminded of the profound words of Dorothy Day who said, Eucharist is breaking bread with broken bodies. Your location is uh, on the near south side of La Crosse. How long has that been there, by the way? Uh, we've, been in, we've been there now for over 26 years. Hmm. So okay. we, we, we pray every Monday morning from 7 until 8. We have a food pantry that's open from 12 until 2 on Tuesdays. Our pantry is open from 3 until 5 on Thursdays, followed by a meal from 5 until 6. And then we also prepare enough food to bring down to the warming center um, and bring it to people who are staying with them at Catholic Charities on Thursday nights. Of course, that ends next week. And, of course, you have the, the camaraderie that people can come in and actually sit and talk and, and, and get to know each other as well. Um, Jack, when I first began, I thought, well, we'll be serving meals. Little did I know that I'd be building long, lifelong friendships. Some of the people I've sat down and had a meal with every Thursday night for uh, 26 years. We've become a part of the fabric of each other's lives. We've had a number of people who have died who have been part of the Place of Grace community, and we have their um, uh, funeral luncheon at the Place of Grace. These are people who do not have means. And so we invite them and their friends and their family come together and we celebrate their life. We celebrate the goodness that they've shared as we sat down around the table together. How important this is, again, it's just this demonstration that we need each other. Our lives are sacred and social. Mother Teresa says this, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. Let me repeat that. If we have no peace, it's because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. You know, one of the, re one of the reasons I've been doing this show for 10 years, uh, number one, it's much more interesting than anything that I did in many, many decades of commercial radio. But uh, you know, I was involved in, in the major media news thing and all that going on. Uh, we get to talk about things that, the major media don't necessarily talk about unless it's somehow to their advantage. You know, if it's something that they think is going to get clicks or whatever, they would never cover a story about a guy who bumped into a guy at a Dollar General store and learned more about him in a few minutes than you would ever expect. And we never, you would not hear stories as you're describing them about Place of Grace. And, um, you know, basically it's just a, they have to deal in such broad strokes. And sometimes, again, and this was from my media world, and you've heard this before, they have this basic uh, tenant that if it bleeds, it leads. If it's something tragic, it's the first thing that's up there because that's what gets attention. 
And that's what gets ratings. And the more common stories of people who just help somebody or something good happens usually are only buried down. There's a, one of the networks has got a half hour news show on. And, you know, they've got they've only got half an hour and they got a whole bunch of ads for, you know, for patent medicines and, and <laughs> digestives, <laughs> which you probably need. But uh, uh, they finally at the very end, you know, after giving you the, the, all the car crashes and all the other things going on that you could possibly imagine at the last 45 seconds, they have they give you 45 seconds of something nice and. It's deliberate. They do that just to kind of end the thing on a little note so you don't feel so rotten that they've just spent 25 minutes plus commercials extolling the stories about earthquakes and all this stuff going on. Um, it's a very odd news cycle. It is something that it is, I've been doing this for since 1980. Um, it, it has gotten crazier. It has gotten uh, worse where, where they will go out of their way to find something that happened that's unfortunate under normal circumstances it's on the other side of the world and yes it was truly a horrible thing and we feel bad but it's something we never would have heard about because uh, it was so far away but now they're bringing it and putting it right in your face you know right on your screen right now because it gets clicks it gets attention that's uh, not a good thing i much prefer what we're doing right here right now tom well, I, I think we're we're part of a of, of a conversation, and we try to include other people in that conversation. Whatever you pay attention to, you get more of. Uh, the one thing that I think is also important to realize is that um, to be a journalist is a high vocation. It's not easy telling those stories. It's not easy showing up at a place in terms of tragedy and, and informing people this is what's taken place. Um, it's not easy in terms of balancing the First Amendment right of, of freedom of speech with people's freedom to know. Um, it's not easy in a world in which the media has exploded and you can get information from all kinds of different sources. It's not easy for you and I to grab the attention of, uh, of people who might want to listen in to uh, a, a talk about, about faith and goodness, community and grace. But we stay at it because this is what we're called to do. And I, I think what I, what I focus on is whatever you pay attention to, you get more of. Wherever your, wherever your attention goes, your energy flows and your focus grows. And so in my line of work, what I try to focus on each and every day is the good stuff. And by golly, what do I see is more and more good stuff. It gives me the strength in order to con confront and smother tragedy, to not give in to despair. After all, I am a teacher. I have young people whose lives are entrusted to me, who sit in a classroom with myself. I don't have to remind them about the tragic and the awful in the world. I have to remind them about their goodness. I have to remind them about the power of grace. I have to remind them about the nobility of service and leadership and being part of a community and healthy organizations and institutions. I have to remind them about their level of responsibility as a person of faith, as a citizen, a friend, a family member. Hold that up. How important it is for us as, as, as elders to be beacons of hope. 
One of my favorite commercials for many years has been, hello, my name's Tom Bodette from Motel 6. And then Tom Bodette goes on for 25 seconds explaining all the reasons as to why you might want to stay in a new and improved Motel 6. But that last line's a dandy. Remember, we'll keep the light on for you. Feed people of hope, I think, is is uh, really extraordinary. And every community needs people who are willing to hold up the light. A lot of people traveling in darkness. If you would allow me uh, one story here. Uh, it's an amazing story, and I would like to honor this man. His man's name is Carl Dooley. Carl is an agricultural agent for Buffalo County. Carl and his wife, Cindy, have lived in the same community of Alma for the last 35 years. Carl has coached high school girls volleyball for Alma and Peppa. Carl has uh, led the Red Cross Blood Drive. He's an EMT in Buffalo County. And a little less than two years ago, Carl was diagnosed with ALS. Carl is now in a wheelchair. He continues to work from home remotely. His wife, Cindy, um, supervises and encourages student teachers. They have a son who's getting his doctorate as a nurse practitioner. And here they are in this small rural community. And Carl contacted me and said, Tom, could I come and talk to students or any other group you think that might benefit from my story? He said, I do not want the disease to define me. I want to live my life in giving back to others as I've always lived it. So now from his wheelchair, he tells the story of living with a terminal illness. He tells the stories to EMTs because when people fall who have Parkinson's or ALS or any other kind of ailment, how is it that they need to be handled? He was an EMT, and he said, I had no idea. He said, I have to teach EMTs how to use um, and turn on a motorized wheelchair because growing up, they never had to deal with that. They don't know about the technology. Younger people might, but we don't have younger EMTs. And so all these very practical ways of caring for other people. But Carl says this, to serve is a privilege. To work is a privilege. To be a member of the community is to be uh, to be a privilege. It is a privilege for me to speak with you here tonight. And he told our senior nursing students, please understand this. I have ALS. There are people we know who have Parkinson's, but there's a number of people in your community who suffer. Please go and help them. However, when you say you're gonna stop by be sure you stop by. Because if you say you're gonna stop by and you don't, it's painful. If you're gonna say you're gonna help, then please help. Because if you don't, it hurts. Please do what you say you're going to do. Please come when you say you're going to come. Let's be committed to each other. Thank you, Carl Dooley. Thank you so many who carry your burdens with dignity and courage, who continue to serve and to give back to each other. People like Jack Sosha, who talk to strangers each and every day, and then bring those conversations to light. 
How about those who are sandbagging today? May God bless them with strength, strong backs, and hot coffee. How about those EMTs and firefighters? How about those farmers that are in the barn waiting for things to dry up so they can get in the food, get in the fields and produce the food that you and I will enjoy for this next year? We are so blessed because our lives are sacred and social and enhanced by the good work and service of other people. You know, you're talking about these things, and I'm thinking there are these, um, these old sayings that we've grown up with. I mean, things like, many hands make light work. And that's true. But also, I was thinking of shortening that just to say, many hands make light. You know, there's a lot of darkness out there, and communities get together. Many hands will create light. Many hands will not just make light work. Many hands make light. Uh, you see certain communities where there just is this light among them because people are doing things for each other. And there's, there's tons of them out there. We don't get a lot of coverage about that. That's why we try to try to do things. We're working a lot now with uh, with Eric Archer, our, our, our new communications director. Uh, he likes to get on the road, and he's got a big four-wheel drive vehicle to do it. And um, we've got some communications equipment now. And so we're able to go places. And, and he gets to go and set up the microphones, and I get to sit here. But I get to talk to people I wouldn't normally be able to talk to, like the fellow recently who recovered from a major ATV accident, and they told him, you would, should be leaving this hospital in a body bag, but there, God wants you to do something. And he has now, over the years, raised tons of money for the, the children's hospital in Marshfield, because uh, he always wanted to help kids. And he goes there on his Harley with a whole bunch of people behind him in Harleys, only he's dressed in a Santa Claus suit in the middle of July. <laughs> and these kids and these kids go nuts. <laughs> you know, I never would have run across this guy had not we been able to go out and had Eric go out and, and do this. And, and we're trying to do, uh, I guess you would call it bird dogging right now, where we're trying to find more people like that so we can tell these stories and get them on the air uh, because this is such good stuff. It, the, the, the idea that this guy, his body was wrecked and he managed to build himself back enough to go into a marathon and then to to do the things he's doing. Uh, just just great stuff. There's people, remarkable stuff going on all around us. And it's why it's so much fun talking to you because you get to see the upcoming students. You're telling me that these nursing students and these people at Viterbo are really dedicated and are, are just in, incredible people to behold. Well, they, they are. I mean, uh, one student just got back from spending a, a clinical rotation for a month in Belize. Living with a, with a family on the Guatemalan border, eating rice and beans just about every day, and she came back so, so joyful. She, her world has been expanded. Her compassion has been deepened. Her skills have been well honed because she was working with people who are less advantaged than ourselves, but finding in them our common humanity. Young people who take 16-hour shifts a young woman whose grandfather has just died, and she was scheduled the next day to go and work on the, on the wing of the hospital where he died. And the manager said, listen, um, if you don't want to come to work, um, I understand. And she said to her mom, I don't know if I can go to work. And her mom said, what would grandpa want? And she said, grandpa would want me to go and take care of people. So she went and her manager got her an opportunity to work on a different floor because it'd be so difficult. 
And at the same time, with a broken heart, she showed up with dignity and grace. Courage is grace under pressure. I see young students who have graduated from Viterbo back at Sunday Mass at San Damiano with three and four children. There they are, faithful, thoughtful, joyful, energetic, and all week long are working in the medical systems right now, caring for people each and every day under difficult circumstances where you can't find enough nurses or pharmacists or people in dietary and they pick up the load. Jack, I tell you, wherever I look, I'm seeing good people doing good work each and every day. In just about every encounter I have, even with people on the phone for customer service, sir, how may I help you? And then with patience and understanding, they guide me through how to pay a bill or how to fix something with my computer. I don't know. Wherever your attention goes, your energy flows. And I see good people doing good work each and every day, not only in our local community, but throughout our country and, dare I say, across the globe. Our lives are sacred and social. Gandhi says, with every true friendship, we build more firmly the foundation on which the peace of the whole world rests. It's our relationships with each other that make sure that we live in peace, that we have hope, and that we continue to act with courage and compassion. Interesting thing is also is that the person listening, you don't have to do something extremely heroic. Uh, simply smiling at someone, simply asking how they are, opening the door for someone who is carrying packages or, you know, I have a lot of fun in the supermarket where I see someone behind me there. They're either, uh, you know, a, a householder who's trying to get home to, to, to make dinner and they're running late. And I just got a couple of cans of coffee. I said, go ahead of me, you know, <laughs> or or they've got hot food or one of my favorite ones, of course, is either ice or ice cream. And I say, no, 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 your stuff is melting. My stuff is not. Go ahead. And, you know, they, they're so happy. Um, it doesn't, you don't have to be, I could say heroic. Uh, you can just do gestures, little tiny things that make someone else's day a little better. It's as simple as that. Um, maybe later on you'll get a chance to do something dramatic. But trust me, the, there's a ton of little stuff that's just not dramatic that makes a nice difference in people's life. As a, the Jewish kibbutz book I once had when I was in college was uh, called Life is with People. And uh, Boa Tom, you are the epitome of that. <laughs> you are life with people, reminding us constantly that uh, these are real people surrounding us. They are not AI. <laughs> they, are, they are genuine and they got, they got things to offer and you can learn from them and they can learn from you and it works out real well. Any final comments before we go, Tom? Well, I think that I have a, a couple of things that I, I say to my students that might be helpful. Number one, Spend 15 minutes every day with connecting with somebody that you care about. 15 minutes every day. Put down your cell phone, turn off your television, spend 15 minutes with somebody that you care about each and every day, and your life will be enriched. Focus on the person you're with at any particular moment. Well, it was really wonderful, Jack, is that you turned off our screens so we could listen to each other's voices. And in listening to your voice, you come alive for me. Well, why is it we cannot continue this throughout our day? Everybody we meet, we understand that we're not our hearts burning within us, that focus. Third, 
Embrace solitude. Every once in a while, take a step back. And in the quietness of your own life, think about the people that you love and the people who love you. Think about the ways in which you are connected and, and have always been connected. Death does not end a relationship. And those of us who are people of faith believe strongly in the communion of saints, people that we are connected with for eternity. And finally, look for ways in which you can serve other people. A phone call, a letter, a conversation, a small bag of groceries. Service is love made visible. And all of us need to be loved. All of us need to be served. All of us need to love and all of us need to serve. Jack, thank you for serving us all so well by hosting these conversations connecting the diocese. Thank you. Tom Thibodeau is the uh, Distinguished Professor of Servant Leadership at Viterbo University. And Tom, we will have you on again real soon, I'm hoping, okay? All right, Jack. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks again now. I get this weekly report via email from the U.S. Department of Trade and Consumer Protection, and they alert you to all of the most recent scams that are making the rounds of the United States. And one of them now is called the One Ring Scam. Your phone rings just once, and you go and you check your caller ID, or you do whatever you have to do to figure out who called you, and you see a number. Well, some people then dial the number to call the person back to find out what they wanted. Well, the scammers have some kind of relay system, and I have no idea how it works. But what happens is, is that you end up connecting to a phone number in, you know, Moldova or, or some central something republic somewhere at a very, very high rate. And even if you only get voicemail, you're still going to be charged a bunch of money for the call. And if they happen to answer, they will string you along going, gee, I have no idea how we could have called you. What kind of business are you in? <laughs> They'll keep going on and on. And by the time you're done, you'll have spent $100 for a phone call. So what the Department of Trade and Consumer Protection is telling you is if you get a one-ring call, don't call it back. If it was important, they would have left you a message. If it was a dropped call due to a bad cell connection, they'd call you back. Very simple. The other thing that is simple is that if you are in the mood to donate some money for a particular charity of some kind, there's a disaster somewhere or there's whatever going on, there's always something where people need money. You are the smartest to do it through a legitimate religious organization, not a phone call, not an unsolicited email. When you donate money to places you know, not only will the money actually be used, as they say it will be, but also you're not seeing CEOs with extremely large salaries. Of course, I always recommend Catholic Charities, Catholic Relief Services. There's also Lutheran World Relief. There's all kinds of good, legitimate people out there. Just do a little bit of homework first before you write a check. Jack Sosha here with you on Connecting the Diocese. I began the show talking about this thing of medical debt bundling and how individual churches around the country are buying up medical debt for pennies on the dollar as opposed to collection agencies. One church gathered up $15,000 and bought $5 million worth of debt and notified people that your debt's canceled. God bless you. Somewhere, somehow, somebody figured this out. And I suspect if you were to go online and find these churches that have done this, you could actually contact them. And there's got to be someone who has written down how you go about doing it. 
Now, this is not at this point a diocesan project by any means. I'm just looking this up on the news going, this is a wonderful, thoughtful, caring, loving, and amazingly brilliant way of really extending your aid to people who really need some help. Imagine getting that letter in the mail that regardless of whether you owe $250 or $10,000 or more, your debt has been canceled by people you've never even met who just care about you. Makes me feel good about being involved in religious things because, well, it's the best thing in the world to do. I'm Jack Sosha. I'll catch you again next week right here on Connecting the Diocese.